If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the November 10th edition of I Am Are You? The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio news magazine. Out loud, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Miss Barbecue. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Steve Pry. And oh. I believe, Miss Barbecue, that if we look at Steve, he still has the fairy dust of Manhattan clinging sure, to him. He sure does. I, know, I, know. I can so totally I see Carrie Brett. He has a whole essence of Carrie Bradshaw all over him. Right I now. know. He goes to Manhattan while we just hold down the but board. But I smell like Samantha Jones. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you for that. Tonight, <laughs> organ master Cameron Carpenter. I just like saying organ master. I know. Do you want to say it again before we move organ on? Organ master Thank Cameron you. Carpenter. Organ master. Organ master. LGBT, LGBTQ activist David Mixner. And acclaimed director Randall Kleiser, who has directed so many iconic movies, but I just sum it up in one word, and that word is Grease. Yes, I'm so excited. The boy in the plastic bubble. No, Grease I was going to limit no. it to one word. Grease, okay. is, Grease is the word, Grease man. Grease is the word. Absolutely. Uh, I feel like I should sing now. <laughs> Please don't. Okay. Well, but first, before we get into that, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Christopher Gall. And I'm Chris Ann Eastwood. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news inter-affecting the LGBT communities around the world for the week ending November 8th, 2014. There were reports late this week about a new anti-LGBT bill in Uganda, that may be even worse than the Anti-Homosexuality Act that was struck down on a legal technicality earlier this year. Human rights lawyer and activist Nicholas Opio told BuzzFeed that he had obtained a leaked copy of the proposal, prepared by a committee of leading members of Uganda's ruling party, and found it even more draconian. Private consensual adult gay sex is already a crime in Uganda. The original Anti-Homosexuality Act enhanced penalties for those acts and punished repeat offenders with up to life in prison. While echoing that provision, the new draft reportedly also makes promotion of LGBT rights a criminal offense. Opio said the new bill, called the Prohibition of Promotion of Unnatural Sexual Practices Bill of 2014, goes into much greater detail than the original measure about what activities are outlawed. And a new section makes it a crime to provide funding for purposes of promoting unnatural sexual practices, which would seem to outlaw financial support from groups that endorse LGBT rights. The fate of the new proposal in Parliament is uncertain. 
President Yoweri Museveni signed the original bill, but now worries about the loss of pro-LGBT countries' international trade and foreign aid if something similar passes. He may be acting behind the scenes to quash it. But soon after the Anti-Homosexuality Act was overturned in August, more than 100 MPs signed a petition calling for its immediate restoration. A leading Nigerian activist who runs a clinic for gay men and transgender people has filed a lawsuit in the High Court, asserting that he was arrested and detained without charge. Ifiani Arazuliki of the International Center on Advocacy for the Right to Health was arrested in Abuja while celebrating his birthday with friends, clinic staff, and other well-wishers. He said about a dozen officers stormed into his office and physically lifted him into a pickup truck. I was told that they had come to arrest me on the instruction of the commissioner of police, he said, but nothing further was volunteered. Oruzaliki said he was only released after police officials realized that he would not pay the bribes they were soliciting. Nigeria strengthened its laws against same-gender sex earlier this year to include bans on marriage for lesbian and gay couples, criminalizing individuals or groups supporting LGBT rights, and even outlawing the expression of same-gender affection in public. Convictions can bring up to 14 years in prison. Eight Egyptian men were each sentenced this week to three years in prison for appearing in what the media sensationalized as a gay wedding video that went viral and sparked a national outcry. The conservative Muslim country has no law banning same-gender sex, so the men were convicted of debauchery and offending public morality, charges most often used against gay men. Amnesty International and a host of other global rights groups have called for the men's immediate release. Critics have denounced an explosion of highly publicized police actions targeting sexual minorities in the past few months. Some say that President Abdel Fattah Assisi, who replaced Islamist Mohamed Morsi, is trying to prove to Egyptians that his administration can be as conservative on social issues as his predecessor. As if to prove the point late this week, the country's religious endowments minister condemned what he called the colonialist Zionist force which sponsors and supports atheists and atheism and finances homosexuals and homosexuality. Mohammed Mokhtar Goma told an evangelical Arabic TV station in a translation by the Middle East Media Research Institute that we must confront atheism, nihilism, homosexuality, and moral depravity the same way we confront extremism and terrorism. But elsewhere, Malaysia's Court of Appeal ruled on November 7th that an Islamic law that bans cross-dressing by Muslim men violates the nation's constitution and is degrading, oppressive, and inhumane because it fails to properly acknowledge transgender women. Under such laws, men dressing or acting as women can be punished by up to three years in prison, while some Malaysian states also ban women dressing as men. Aston Paiva, the lawyer for the three transgender women who challenged one of those states' cross-dressing bans in the Court of Appeal, called it a landmark and historic decision. He said that while the state law the trans women were charged with violating is still on the books and could lead to more prosecutions, you can now go to the high court and challenge them. Nisha Ayub, a transgender activist, told Agence France Presse, that the ruling would encourage others to come out rather than being oppressed. 
And trans woman Dr. Lydia Foy has settled her lawsuit against the Irish government. In a first for the country, Ireland's high court ruled that the state's failure to legally recognize a trans person's affirmed gender is a violation of the European Convention on Human Rights Act of 2003. The now 67-year-old dentist has been fighting for 21 years to have the gender marker on her birth certificate changed to read female. Following the court's decision, the Irish government settled with Foy for 50,000 euros, equivalent to about 62,500 U.S. dollars. Foy also announced this week that the government had an expressed intention to introduce a gender recognition bill, which would recognize trans people in all dealings with the state, public bodies, and civil and commercial society. Legal recognition, she said, is vital to improving the daily lives of trans people in Ireland. Judges in U.S. federal appeals courts have consistently struck down bans on civil marriage for same-gender couples in several states this year. But on November 6th, the 6th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld those bans in Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee. By the following day, lawyers for the same-gender couple plaintiffs in all four states had jointly decided to forego asking the 6th Circuit to reconsider the ruling with a larger panel of judges and instead go directly to the U.S. Supreme Court for a decision that would finally settle the issue nationally. Because a split now exists among the circuits on the question of whether it's unconstitutional for states to define civil marriage as exclusively heterosexual, the high court is virtually compelled to consider the issue. A ruling could come as early as next June's LGBT Pride Month celebrations. We'll have more on this story later in the program. Court battles over marriage equality continue in Missouri and Kansas, but there won't be a resolution of the issue in Florida until next year. In the latest blow to the ban in Missouri, which had already been overturned by a state judge, U.S. Federal District Court Judge Ortree Smith on November 7th declared the ban to be a violation of the due process and equal protection provisions of the U.S. Constitution. And in response to yet another lawsuit, another state judge this week ordered the city of St. Louis to begin issuing marriage licenses to same-gender couples. A state court had already ordered Missouri to recognize the civil marriages of same-gender couples legally performed elsewhere. It's not yet clear if Attorney General Chris Coster, a Democrat, will appeal the district court ruling to the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which also has jurisdiction over Arkansas, Nebraska, and North and South Dakota. In the latest skirmish in the equally fluid situation in Kansas, the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has denied the state's request for a stay of a district court judge's ruling earlier this week that overturned the ban on civil marriage in that state. Unless the Supreme Court steps in, Kansas lesbian and gay couples will begin marrying on November 11th or 12th. The state reportedly still plans to appeal the ruling by U.S. District Court Judge Daniel Crabtree, who said it was based on the precedent set by an earlier Tenth Circuit ruling that struck down bans on civil marriage in Utah and Oklahoma. That also prompted a swift end to the bans in Colorado and Wyoming, which are also in the court's regional jurisdiction. But U.S. District Court Judge Robert Hinkle has decided that his August ruling striking down Florida's ban will remain on hold until January 5th. Hinkle's stay on marriage in Florida means newly elected Republican Governor Rick Scott and Attorney General Pam Bondi can continue their crusade against marriage equality in the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. In other news, Estonia has become the third country in the region to deny entry to popular Russian TV sitcom actor Ivan Oklobystin. 
The former priest, who notoriously called for gay people to be burned alive in ovens, had planned on performing in Tallinn later this month. Ukraine was the first to ban him as a threat to national security, and Latvia soon followed. And Latvian Foreign Minister Edgar Rinkovich, who announced his country's ban on Oklabyston last week for what he called hate speech, came out on his official Twitter page this week, saying that he is proud to be gay. While same-gender relationships are banned by Latvia's constitution, Rinkovich vowed to fight for all partnerships to be recognized. But finally, Russian authorities have taken down a six-foot memorial statue of an interactive iPhone on a St. Petersburg college campus that paid tribute to late Apple founder Steve Jobs. Saying it's now a violation of Russia's anti-gay propaganda law after current Apple CEO Tim Cook's widely hailed coming out last week, officials said the statue had become a public call to sodomy. That's News Wrap for the week ending November 8th, 2014. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap was produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Chrisanne Eastwood. And I'm Christopher Gall. You can hear all 30 minutes of the latest This Way Out, including more news wrap on free podcasts, Stitcher Radio on Demand, iTunes, or at thiswayout.org. Also on the program this week, why the U.S. Supreme Court may be forced to take the sixth. <laughs> and why, uh, why Liberia blames gays for Ebola. And leafing through three new books about and for trans people and those who love them. You know, when I heard an internationally acclaimed pipe organist was coming to town, to be very honest, I was... Not very excited. Mm -hmm. But then I saw him perform in a video sporting a mohawk, a tank top, capri pants, and bedazzled shoes. And I knew right then and there that I absolutely had to meet Cameron Carpenter, the most exciting man in classical music. Flamboyant classical musician Cameron Carpenter is known for his virtuosity, showmanship, technique, and arrangements for the pipe organ, both those legendary instruments found in cathedrals and concert halls, as well as the million-dollar, one-ton, portable pipe organ with which he sometimes tours. Hi, I'm Cameron Carpenter, the American organist. What are some of the misconceptions about the pipe organ? Well, I think the misconceptions about the pipe organ are both specific to it and sort of general misconceptions about the organ, meaning any kind of organ. And when we talk about the organ outside of the organ community, meaning you and me, you know, sort of thinking of popular perceptions of the organ, what we're actually talking about is the organist a lot of the time, which is to say that the organist is sort of an eccentric, bizarre character who dwells in the organ loft and isn't terribly socially well-rounded or artistically well-rounded, but sort of off-removed from everything. Of course, that's actually not the case. I try to make that not the case with me. I can't speak for others. I suppose there's a bit of truth in every stereotype. But when we talk about the pipe organ, and you can already see I'm kind of dividing between communities, you know, between the people who know organ and the people who don't know organ. Why can't we all just get along? Why can't, well, why, why can't we all just deal with the organ or not? But I mean, there is that 
divide, and you can quickly see it, that one either is sort of invested in and initiated into this seemingly bizarre, somehow Masonic instrument, or not. And probably more than all of the other classical instruments, it has some kind of dichotomy built in, where you either seemingly know about it or get it or don't. As, as far as I relate to the organ, I, it's not that I'm especially devoted to breaking that down, but of course I myself don't really relate at all to the image of an organist or really to a hardcore classical music person. And so the idea of the organ as this instrument of grandiosity and especially of holiness just, to me, doesn't really mean much at all. Tell me about your childhood. My family was and is itself an outlier family. My father's an inventor and an engineer. My mother is an artist and now a massage therapist. And my brother is also a highly qualified engineer and an environmental scientist. And so sort of into the midst of rural northwestern Pennsylvania and these two incredibly intellectually and sort of aesthetically rich people were dropped these two kids who were totally different. And although it's a nice sort of return story because much of the physical touring infrastructure of the International Touring Organ has been built by my brother's custom fabrication shop. A lot of the speaker cases and some of the road equipment. So that's kind of nice. But I mean, basically I was homeschooled, but that was before that was, at least in my estimation it was I was never aware at the time that that was sort of a far-right Christian thing to do rather it was kind of a post-hippie thing my mother felt that it was it was the best solution to particularly for me less so for my brother to give me the time to be creative and to have a lot of time for music so the important thing about my childhood is less that my family wasn't strictly musical rather that they were strictly supportive and that there was a certain discipline, but mostly the creation of a safe space for me to be experimental and to grow as a, as a person. To paraphrase punter Chris Cluey, as a child, were you a beautifully unique sparkle pony? Beautifully unique sparkle pony is, is probably one of the words I would use to describe myself now. I think the sparkle sort of e- evolved. Beautiful is not my department to comment. And, um, Ponies as good an animal as any other, so I guess we could go with that. Tell me about coming out. When did you know, and when did you reveal? Well, the reveal was never a big deal. I don't remember that I ever made a huge statement of coming out except to my father, um, which was when I was about 22. But by then, I had already been living away from home for uh, mm, at least six years. So, I, I mean, I had the the great gift and experience, <clears throat> just as I did as a child, to have a safe space to to create myself. I, you know, I went off to the University of North Carolina when I was 16 and then to New York City when I was about 20. So I already had the chance to go off and define myself as a character and to create the character I wanted Cameron Carpenter to be, as I still am doing. But By dint of that, it was never important for me to reconcile that character with what other people sort of, you know, I I never needed to go back and update the earlier version. And partly that was true because I I never really identified as gay. Technically, I would have to say I'm bisexual, but it just sort of was one of those things that I was open about. And I wasn't doing that to be 
ahead of my time or anything or to be particularly open about it. It just was my way of doing it. So my experience is as far as the the importance of coming out and, and particularly, and I know this is very, very important for some people, the moment at which that realization is reached and the comfort level or the personal decision to announce that or to reveal that requires a huge emotional investment. I can only imagine that because I never actually had to experience it. But I can say from from the standpoint of my experience, wouldn't it be nice to have a world where the drama of coming out would be elective instead of forced? I didn't realize you were bisexual. That can be its own unique journey. Talk about that. I'm no great gay theorist, but it seems to me that the bisexual, particularly the bisexual man, is not the most sympathetically received character in the gay community, often because there's still thought to be some aspect of of hiding or of a lack of committing that one is actually gay. But the people like me for whom sexuality is really, as I like to describe it in a totally improbable way, 100% of both identities are fairly rare. Most of the people I've known who are bisexual seem to trend more towards one gender or another. I personally don't, and I notice that there's some strange psychological thing with me that maintains a lot of dualities in in various sections of my life, not really by choice, but sort of by inclination. And so it's difficult for me to speak, and really impossible for me to speak for others, but of course I've always had the impression bisexuality is not completely recognized sort of as an independent state as much as it should be. We say LGBT, but give little thought to the B. Well, it's a great letter, and it's an important one of those adorable consonants. But one can sort of start adding a lot of consonants. The other Q consonant is often put on the end, when in fact it's really the most important of all of them. It's the only one that seems to grasp everything together. And uh, the reflex to sort of say, oh, what's with all of these letters is perilously close to the reflex of saying, oh, I don't really want to have to take time to understand that person's story. So I think that it's important to have both the shorthand and the full experience. But like I said, I'm no theorist. I can only tell you about the sexuality of me, about which you're free to ask. Everybody's experience comes from something. Mine is a crucible of self-invention. I'm, in a way, relieved that the closet has never really been part of that. And I think that's one of my great privileges. And I stand on the shoulders of quite a few people who suffer greatly for that to be the case. But, of course, we know that there's still a lot of work to do in that realm, too. But as far as bisexuality is concerned, it it at least has the great worth for me of allowing me to feel, at least, that I have a little bit more experience of understanding other people's pathways, too because I sometimes feel as though I can relate perhaps better to the experience of a gay man and and also of a straight man, or perhaps also to some degree of a woman of whatever sexuality. And that's um, a part of my life that I treasure very much and don't take it all for granted. What's the biggest misconception about Cameron Carpenter? The misconception is that I'm doing anything to promote the organ, but it's not about the organ, it's about the experience. That's why my aesthetic is really one of ecstasy. I find that I am driven to play because of the feeling of the ecstatic. This has been a conversation with organist Cameron Carpenter. Find more information and his touring schedule at CameronCarpenter.com. This is Steve Pride. 
Thanks for listening. My aesthetic is ecstasy. Ooh, girl. I wish I could say things like that. <laughs> he was literally one of the smartest Ooh. people I've ever met. He was so well-spoken. Oh, my God. And we, and articulate and, and so talented. And we Googled him while he was talking, and it, he just even looked more attractive. My goodness. Bisexual, too? Honey. And yet, who introduced him to the phrase sparkle pony? It <laughs> I was did. you. I did. So well, you, congratulations, you Steve. You've well, changed Cameron Carpenter aesthetic. will be performing with the Los Angeles Philharmonic at Walt Disney Concert Hall on November 20th, 21st and 22nd. I hope you'll check them out there. Yes. After the break, we'll head to New York for a sit-down with iconic LGBTQ activist David Mixner. And we'll also have the director of those exotic flesh fests, Blue Lagoon and Summer Lovers, although that's not what we're going to talk about. Oh, that took me <laughs> back. Oh. I know, right? <laughs> you, Christopher Atkins. Yeah, love him. Down, down. Brooke Shields will always live forever. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Great Mademoiselle, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Considered one of the greatest teachers of musical composition in the 20th century, Nadia Boulanger guided the careers of many of the most famous composers of her time. She was affectionately known as Mademoiselle. Born in France in 1887, she came from a long line of superbly talented musicians and began studying organ and composition at age 10. During her distinguished career, she molded many gay composers such as Aaron Copland, Virgil Thompson, Giancarlo Minotti, and Leonard Bernstein. Mademoiselle was the first woman to conduct the Boston Symphony, the Philadelphia Orchestra, the New York Philharmonic, and the BBC Orchestra. In her dying days, her students comforted her by singing Mozart, Schubert, and Schumann. In 1979, a newspaper headline read simply, Mademoiselle is no more. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, John DeBoer. Hello, I'm Cameron Carpenter, the organist, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 93.7 San Diego or streaming online at kpfk.org. You own Capri's like fancy cheese. You shop so much it's like you have a disease. No girlfriend since you were 10. All your Facebook friends are mad. As you walk in the room, we see it Everyone knows you like dudes Baby, that fierce little strut And those perfect brows You work out six days a week And still weigh two pounds You manscape your junk So it ain't no doubt You don't know Uh-oh, you're a homosexual If only you would admit you're gay You could profess your love for Gaga and Britney
Uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, welcome back. <laughs> You're listening to IMIU Radio. I am Steve Pride. <laughs> I'm Ms. Barbecue. I'm Wenzel Jones, and the time is now 7.28. David Mixer has been involved in public life, creating policy, and as an activist and writer for over 40 years. He has two best-selling books, Stranger Among Friends and Brave Journeys. He was best friends with Ted Kennedy, and once upon a time, long, long ago, best friends with Bill Clinton. And when I was in New York City last week, sitting down with him was at the very top of my to-do list, and I caught up with him just the day after he'd performed Oh Hell No, his one-night-only, one-man autobiographical stage show. That's insane. Off-Broadway. Although his blog is called Live from Hell's Kitchen, David Mixner now lives closer to Times Square. Next door, Blythe Danner stars in The Country House, and across the street, Carol Burnett and Brian Dennehy are in love letters. But on an overcast New York afternoon, it's the drama of a life well lived that interests me. The energetic 68-year-old greets me in the lobby, and we take the elevator to his sixth-floor apartment. My name is David Mixner, and this is New York City. How did you become an activist? Well, I'm 68, just turned 68, and I started in 1960. I was influenced by what I call the uh, two Johns and a Martin. Martin Luther King uh, had an enormous impact on me getting involved. John Kennedy, I, being Irish Catholic, was a saint in my family. And then the third person was John the 23rd. And perhaps most surprising to people is the underlying principle in my life has been liberation theology. And for those who don't know what that is, it is the concept that you're placed here by God on earth for only one reason, and that is to serve others. Perhaps the patron saint of liberation theology besides John the 23rd was Archbishop Romero, who was assassinated because of it. And this is when all of the young priests and nuns went to Latin America to practice liberation theology. So the whole underlining values and principles of my life has been based on liberation theology. The Catholic Church has come a long way since then on LGBT issues. I stopped going to the Catholic Church with John Paul and Benedict, and now I find myself with a bromance with the new pope, Pope Francis. But you know, when I was in college at Arizona State, one of the first things I did was the municipal garbage workers in Tempe, Arizona, were getting like 25 cents an hour, and they were all Hispanic. And I helped organize a union and led marches from the university down to the Tempe City Hall to support them at a very young age. As a community, we sometimes get so caught up in problems that are specifically LGBTQ, that we forget we are also impacted by broader social issues. We need jobs. We need clean air to breathe. We drink the water. You know, I recently held a show, one-man show called Oh Hell No, which raised $170,000 for the Point Foundation, and, and it was on Broadway this past week. And I end the show by saying, you know, through our trail of tears, through our pain, through the fire bombings, the gay bashings, the death from AIDS, all of those things that helped define us as a community, as a community of courage, a community of love. We've 
through that trail of tears have developed incredible gifts. We had to create our own healthcare systems. We had to feed our own people. We had to learn how to change IVs. We had to uh, fight the most horrendous kind of hate in the middle of an epidemic. You know, at one time they wanted to put tattoos on our hands to say who was gay and who wasn't. Through that, we've developed an enormous gifts of how to organize, how to take care of others, how to feed the hungry. And at the end of my show, I said, you know, the only way that we can dishonor those who died of AIDS, uh, to dishonor those who were victims of gay bashings, the Matthew Shepherds, uh, those whose homes were burned down, or Troy Perry's whose churches were firebombed, is not to take these gifts into a greater world, because we have all this talent. And so each night, 14% of the American children go to bed hungry. We know how to feed them. The oceans are rising. We know how to lower them. We seem to have an endless cycle of war these days. We know how to make peace. We know how to bring love into the world. And if we as a community don't bring those talents forth and offer them to a greater world, uh, then everything we've done is a lie. If it's all about, well, we got ours, we can get married now, we can adopt children now, we can get federal money for our projects now. And if we leave this extraordinary journey that we've experienced as open LGBT Americans without taking it into the world, then certainly a lot of people died in vain. How would you make that happen? Well, I think it's up to each individual. It isn't for me to make it happen. I I mean, I I hope people like myself and this radio show and uh, people like Cleve Jones or Edie Windsor who stood up and made it happen. You know, if someone says to me, you're responsible for marriage or this person's responsible or some person stands up and say, I'm upset because I'm not getting the attention I should for being... You know, I say there's two people who will be in our history books in the high schools. And they're the right people. It's Harvey Milk, our blessed martyr. And it's Edie Windsor, you know, who's our Rosa Parks. The rest of us are irrelevant. The rest of us have to respond to their sacrifice and their inspiration. And I don't care how I'm remembered. What I care is what the next generation does with what we've done. And anybody with a sense of history realizes how fleeting it is. Knowledge is simply what we wake up with this morning. Anyone who insists that others meet us where they are currently at in some sense of self-righteousness doesn't understand the purpose of a movement. The purpose of a movement is not to validate our own self-righteousness, but to change minds and to welcome people when they change those minds. You mentioned Cleve Jones. He told me to always remember that our community is not only LGBT, we are black, white, Asian, Latino, male, and female. That in a crisis, we have the opportunity to serve as the bridge. We've had to come together. I mean, I talk in my show about how there was great misogyny from the gay community directed to women in the 60s and the 70s in the movement. And I talk about how when we formed the first LGBT political action committee in history called MECLA, that we had to battle with other gay men because we insisted that it be 50% women, 50% gay men, and co-chairs. 
a woman in, and that had never been done before in the community. And oh my God, you would have, first of all, you'd have thought you'd have asked gay men to give a pint of blood every day that it was so painful for them, but we had to overcome that misogyny. And then we had to build trust in the lesbian community. They rightfully were distrustful because they had been at the receiving end of that misogyny in the community. But we found ways, and I talked about that in the show, how to bridge that, and just in the nick of time, because as we came together, Anita Bryant surfaced. And when she surfaced, we were a united community in California. So it became rapidly clear that that effort, that that struggle of communication and building trust that we had to go through to overcome that misogyny was so important to our success in defeating her. It's easy to forget those early gender struggles. Yeah, well, it was male-female war, and, and when we were in Mechland, I remember how we overcame the distrust of lesbians. Uh, we had people like Pat Denslow and Diane Abbott and Roberta Bennett and Ivy Botini, and they were willing to work with men, but no one person can overcome decades of mistrust. Actions and using the right language. You know, sometimes we have to value our words as much as our actions. And it was doing, I think it was 77, don't quote me, because, you know, at 68, you know, all these years run together. But I think it was 76, 77, it was International Women's Year. And in California, at the University of Southern California, they were going to elect delegates to go. And Phyllis Shafley, the right-wing horrendous person from Illinois, was running a slate of delegates so that the family value slate would be elected to International Women's Year, and the feminists and the lesbians were running another slate. And I remember saying to Diane and Pat and Roberta and Ivy, I said, well, who can vote? And they said, well, anyone that pays $20 and registers and stands in endless lines to vote. I said, oh, I said, so can men vote? And they said, yes. I said, oh, well, that's good information. And I remember myself and Sid Crocker and Peter Scott and Ray Harmon, we put busloads of gay men together. And we went down without telling our sisters, and we pulled up where our lesbian sisters were, and dozens and dozens of gay men got off those buses to vote for the, well, I think it was the orange slate, the, 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 the feminist slate. And from that moment on, we, they said, okay, you were there for us. We're going to be there for you. We're going to work together. And, and it wasn't flawless, and it wasn't without its bumps. But from that point on, we were working side by side. This is part one of a multi-part conversation with David Mixner. Find more information at davidmixner.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Just for the record, there are two things in there I want to point out. We talked about the International Year of the Woman, and that was 1975. I looked it up. Okay. That wasn't so long ago. No. Yeah. That was actually the first year that we had a woman here on, on IMRU. It was Lucia Chappelle, who is having a birthday today. So I want to shout out to Lucia. Happy, Happy birthday. Happy birthday, girl. Happy birthday, girl. And also, he talked about Mecla which confused me at first. It's actually the Municipal Elections Committee of Los Angeles. I never heard of it, but it sounds interesting. So that was entertaining was and, and educational. here before he was moved shaker there and in D.C., and he has done everything. And we have another four parts to the interview. We're going to oh. talk about AIDS. We're going to talk about 
Don't have two other tell. things. We're going to talk about Obama, <laughs> and we're going to talk about what he really thinks about Bill Clinton. And oh? on that note, speaking of fascinating people, we exactly. have here sitting with us right now, renowned director Randall Kleiser. And I told you about all of his movies, but that's not what we're here to talk about. So welcome. Thank Randall. you very much. I'm because right now, I know, playing, playing at the Coast Playhouse in West Hollywood is The Penis Chronicles, Every Man's Journey, and it is directed by Mr. Kleiser himself. That's true. And if I were to explain the play, I would just say, oh, it's eight monologues of men talking about men, but it's so much more than that. Mm -hmm. So could you explain it to people? Well, we have characters that range from a 16-year-old boy who's using a penis pump because he hasn't matured yet, and he thinks that'll help, to a 67-year-old man who's looking back at his life and realizing his youth is gone, and he had a terrible marriage and really wishes he could go back and do it all over again. And in between, we have an uh, African-American drag queen who... Say what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we do. And she... A role lost. She oh, my sent, God. Uh, she sent her younger brother to summer camp with the money she made from turning tricks, and he died in a canoe accident. So there's all kinds of human stories, all kinds of different um, characters, and it's not just about the organ. Right. <laughs> well, I know. And, and I, I actually wondered, was there any discussion about maybe giving it another title so it doesn't seem so organ-centric? Well, you know. Why are we still talking about the organ? Cameron Carpenter was last half hour. It's the organ episode. Well, I really felt that, that to have uh, that title on the Coast Playhouse in West Hollywood was going to help us get people into the theater. Well, now, did you actually pick that theater? or Totally. That's the only one I wanted to For the location, because it's the right in the middle of The only place I wanted town. to do the th play, because people drive by there all day, mm -hmm. and they see it. So I'm hoping that, that uh, we just want to get them in the door, and then they'll see how good it is. Right. It, it is. It's a great marquee. You can't miss it. Now, you had a relationship with the playwright beforehand. Did he bring the play to you, or did you go seek out the play? Or? Um, he sent it to me. He worked for me on two movies, White Fang and... Uh, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, Tom Ewell. Mm -hmm. He's the grand, uh, the um, nephew of Tom Ewell who was in uh, The Seven, Seven Year Itch. Itch with Marilyn Monroe that, with that famous oh. scene. Anyhow, Tom used to work for me, and uh, and he sent me the play about a year ago, and I, I just read it because, you know, he was a former uh, uh, friend and employer employee, and uh, I was blown away. I couldn't believe that he had this talent. I didn't know he wrote at all until he sent this to me. And I just thought, wow, this has got to be done. And this is the world premiere, right? That's right. Now, did you, did you guys workshop this at all? Or? No, we, uh, we didn't. We, we had a reading. I had a reading, um, I, I guess, several months ago. We had a few friends come and read, like RuPaul read the drag queen part. Oh, And uh, Bruce cool. Davison read the older man's part. And uh, just so we could hear it out loud, and that was about it. And then uh, uh, one boy, uh, Kyle Eastman, who plays the young kid, was at the original reading, and he, mm. we liked him so much he ended up doing it. I would have loved to get uh, Bruce and RuPaul, but they're a little busy for uh, one of these six They, they are runs. overbooked. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, now, you... Uh, you you raise funds just like every scrappy person out there on Indiegogo for those? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you know, we have some people who, who uh, two ladies who put up some money, and then we just wanted to have some extra for, you know, if we get to extend or, you know, unforeseen expenses. I've never done a play before, and so there's all these unforeseen expenses that pop up everywhere you turn. 
And I'm just learning that. Isn't it amazing how expensive small theater is in Los yes. Angeles? And also, how do you make money? I, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. We, we just opened on Friday, and I don't know how it's going to go. I hope everybody out there comes and see it so that we can keep going and maybe take it to off-Broadway. Oh, dear, I hate to break it to you, but nobody makes money in L.A. theater. No? Nobody. <laughs> how, do they, how do they survive? How do they survive? Oh, it's a it's a rough little existence. If Randall Kleiser can't make money in, in L.A. theater... What's the hope for the rest of us? I know. <laughs> I know, right? I say we all pack up and go home. <laughs> now, you, do now you, you said that this is your first uh, time directing theater, mm-hmm. and this is such a tricky theater piece uh, consisting of nothing but monologues. Um, how do you go about rehearsing monologues? Because nobody's – you have no scenes with – it's like it's not a classic structure is right. all I'm saying. right. Well, we we mapped out outside in my backyard. We mapped out the the size of the theater, and then I just worked with the actors on finding partners uh, out in the uh, where the fourth wall, you know, where they're talking to someone or or indicating something and stuff that I learned from my mentor and teacher Nina Fosh about partnering and um, and so I I, uh, I found it really interesting. The only thing that bothers me about um, the, the the whole idea of play directing is that. I'm a control freak, and once they get on the stage and go out there, you can't tell them to go faster or pick up the pace or or do a different line reading. You, you know, you're just stuck. They're 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 doing their thing. So, you know, it's not uh, it's not what I'm used to. Well, but are you finding theater actors are a different breed altogether from film yes, actors? Yes, and in what absolutely. way? Well, they're they're much more dedicated, I think, and I mean they. First of all, they're not being paid very much, and they come and they stay for hours and hours, and they and they show up on time, and and are always willing to do things like uh, you know pitch in if there's something has to be done. I mean, the thing about the theater, everybody has to be a team because uh, it goes up live, and and you have to have it happen no matter what happen what what things fall apart. You have to figure out a way around it. Well, now, what's been the most challenging thing about doing theater as opposed to film to you, since it's a new medium for you? Well, getting over the nerves of somebody not showing up. Mm. Because in movies, you can wait for them. But in theater, if they don't show up, you're really screwed and you have to scramble. We had a little problem yesterday. Somebody overslept and um, <laughs> and we almost had a disaster. But they showed up right at the right moment. That's right. Now that you mentioned there's no understudies in the program, are there? <laughs> well, we do have understudies, but this was a, a production person yeah. oh, who okay. shall remain nameless. He knows no, who he is. Exactly. And and what has been your biggest surprise, pleasant or un, about doing theater? Because it's, it's such a rough thing to do anyway, and to be brand new to it is... Mm. Um, th- well, I mean, the attitude, I think, of, the, of everybody involved is what I really... Uh, Loved, you know. I heard about theater people and how they all pitch in and they become a family and all that. And I haven't experienced it, and so that's what I really like about it. This this wonderful group of eight actors that we have. They we had a wonderful opening night party at the Abbey on Saturday night, and everybody was like bonding, and it was real, real terrific. It was like a family. Well, and I meant to say because I I was there at the opening night, not at the Abbey party, but after the show, there was this big long stretch limo outside the theater. You don't see those outside of LA theaters very often. <laughs> that was the ladies who put up some of the money who, oh. who did that. That was not me. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to load the cast in and go to the Abbey. In well, there. that would have been yeah. I think we did carry some of the, they We went back and forth. Yeah. And they were they, these ladies were wonderful who put up the money for most of it, and uh, they were very excited to be part of theater. Nice. 
Mm. Now, is there a character <laughs> in the show that you were closest to because they're so mm. different? And I'm, I'm not going to assume it's the one who's closest to us in age. But, I mean, there's so many different types of men up there on that stage. I mean, was it easier to direct one because you thought, I know this person? Mm, that's a good question. Um, well, certainly the older one, I do have elements that I understand about that, about falling apart as you get older. <laughs> but um, I think uh, I like the attitude of Roman, the, the male prostitute. I mean, mm -hmm. it's his, his attitude about sex is just so open, and I like that about him. Mm -hmm. um, there's... Uh, the young boy, I think everybody. Uh, there, there's a guy named Shane who is a, a boy coming out at a um, farm in the Midwest, and the things that he went through as a young kid at 12, 13, and the way he saw the world and how you know this. He had an image of a circus boy on the cover of a magazine that he fell in love with, and you know everybody has something like that. That any, every gay person has some icon or some image that they fall in love with when they're young, don't quite understand why they're attracted to it, and then they later do find out. So I think that's a wonderful uh, thing that everyone can identify with. I think there's things in this play that uh, probably um, every character has something you can identify with. And, and is there something about theater that's been a a rude surprise other than the fact that you wor you worry about people not showing up. But I mean, <laughs> something intrinsic to theater itself that you just think, wow, I had no idea this was coming. Well, um, I guess the laughs, you know, you never know. I mean, we, we expect laughs at certain points, and, and sometimes they come and sometimes they don't, and then they come in places we don't expect them. And the live quality of that is very exciting to sit there and, and hope you get it and then try to figure out in the next performance, okay, we didn't get that, so let's do it a little differently and see if we get it, you know. Well, and I've always wondered, how do you even do that in film? How do you allow for a laugh? Because you don't know what's going to come till it's you all done. No, no. In film, you just have to hope for the best. But in theater, you can sort of structure it. If you have a really good joke, mm -hmm. you can have the actor wait for the laughter to end and then move on. We had, we, we, they were stepping on laughs, and um, we, we were learning how to take a beat after mm -hmm. a joke, so... That, that was kind of interesting. I wasn't used to that. And, and now that you've got your feet wet in theater, is there any show that you're thinking, you know what, I really need to tackle this? Well, I've written uh, a play version of my film, It's My Party, mm -hmm. that I th that's all in one set. So I think that would be a, a really good one. I'd love to do that next. If, if, if people come see Penis Chronicles, then maybe I'll get the... Uh, impetus to move on to that. And for That's those such a great movie. Yeah, Thank it's a great you. movie. Yeah, right. And for those that. who saw the movie, that one set was Randall Kleiser's house. <laughs> <laughs> and a beautiful house it is. Yes, and you gorgeous. were just telling us that house has been used in other... Oh, yeah. They blew it up in Scream 3. <laughs> was that a gratifying or terrifying thing to witness? It was very fun. They built a 60-foot wide copy of my house exactly, a miniature about the third side of the size, and then had five cameras around, and I went over to the valley. They built this whole thing. I went over at night and and watched them blow up my house, and it was real fun. <laughs> <laughs> and how many people can have that experience? <laughs> um, so what are the plans ongoing for Penis Chronicles? I assume that you have plans maybe to extend. We I said to. that. Extend Penis Chronicles. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, I'm, I think we might be... If if we do extend, it might be like in the new year because of the Christmas holidays. I don't think we're going to go through that, but we'll, we'll may, we might come back in January, possibly. Just depends on how many people show up. And do you have to take it out of town or around the world? Or We'd love to eventually take it off Broadway. We'd like mm -hmm. to have it go to college campuses, little theater groups. I think it's a, a play that that uh, could easily adapt to many different. 
places um, and, and companies. Okay. And I'd, I'd give me a moment. Indulge me, please, while I ask my goofy question, which has nothing to do with this. But when you did the um, commentary tracks for the DVD of Blue Lagoon, yeah. how much fun was that? Because that made that movie a hundred times more entertaining to, oh, yeah. to watch it with a commentary. Well, there's two commentaries, one with Brooke and me and one right. with Chris and me. Right. And Chris, Christopher Atkins was so... He had a great sense of humor about what the movie was and who yeah. he was in it. Where and Brooke Shields was so naive when she made that movie; it That's was right. stunning. Yeah. And when you listen to them talk about it together, it's great. And I just wonder, was that fun to do? Oh, a blast! Yeah, because it was so, great fun to listen to. Because we hadn't seen each other for a while, and you know, the the island that we shot that movie on, the guy who owns it has flying uh, Chris and I down there in May. For a, for ten days, it's become like a honeymoon. Uh, oh, not really? That, not that we're on the honeymoon, but yeah. <laughs> it's become a honeymoon uh, destination. Place. Yeah, exactly. They have like uh, sixteen huts that you can rent for a thousand a night or something. It's what? Like, yeah, this stuff, the, our movie made this real popular. And as always, we're running out of time here. But you did want to discuss your Nina Foch course. So yeah. Let's... Well, Nina taught at, taught directing at USC and AFI for. 40 years. She was also the actress who was in the t- Spartacus and the Ten Commandments, American in Paris. She was the best directing teacher that USC ever had. And we, George Lucas put up some money and we made, we filmed her for 15 weeks and turned it into a four-hour DVD, uh, either an online course or a DVD, and it's at uh, ninafoshproject.com. And that's N-I-N-A-F-O-C-H-C-H. F-O-C-H, yes. It's really good. It's a labor of love. So if you want more information, you can go to the Facebook page for Penis Chronicles, and please tell us how they spell it. Well, you have to use a Epsilon, P-Epsilon-N-I-S. Facebook would not let us say penis, so I don't know where you find that on your on your. On your, on your keyboard, yeah. yeah. I don't know how, no you, idea I don't know how you get to it. but <laughs> Or online for the uh, rest of us. It's at place411.com slash penis chronicles for tickets, information. And I believe they've got a trailer up there, don't they? Yes. Also, you can reach it at www.thepenischronicles.net. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming out and sharing your time Thanks with us. Thanks for the wonderful experience. It passed entirely too quickly. Yeah. There were like 50 movies I wanted to talk about. I know, I mean, right? Everyone talks about Grease. And I know. Later, but <laughs> I want to Dog about... Portrait of a Teenage Runaway on television in 1976 changed my life. Really? Did you become a prostitute? <laughs> well, <laughs> in Alexander, the other well. side of Dawn, I almost did. Yeah. And I wanted to talk to about D. I'll just say college was expensive. Well, so. yeah. I, this is the first time he's been here, so next time you come back, we'll just chat. Okay. Yeah, Good. we'll have to chat and stuff. Yeah, I got yeah. D.D. Cohen stories and everything. Oh my God. Well, that's the end of our ride. Gather yeah. your personal courage. <laughs> Take Timothy Politico's by the hand and exit to the far left of the tram's Forward motion. And thanks to tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, social media master, John Dyer V, coordinating producer, Steve Pride, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube as IMRU Radio or contact us directly via email at IMRU Radio at IMRURadio.org. IMRU is posted to the IMRU Radio Facebook page by noon every Tuesday. And while you're there, give us a like, please. Thank C- you. Coming like on up next. Like yes. Coming on up coming up next, flip the script with Rico Matsuda. And y'all have a great Veterans Day tomorrow. We're going to close with a song the new Republican majority in Congress might have us all singing very soon. It's Coswell's Dance Like You Got Good Credit. Good night. <laughs> Dance, dance, like you got good credit. 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 Dance, dance, like you got good credit.
prepaid Wear them clothes like they ain't eBay Watch that flat screen like it ain't on layaway Lay away, lay away, wear that shirt like it ain't your brother's Spend that money like it ain't your mother's Serve that food on a plate like it wasn't Take away, take away, take away Who's getting loose, losing all that cash Sipping blue juice out of champagne glass Who got the check on me and do a dead ass? Cause all your paper up a strip is a Tell me when you're buying me new shoes, daddy I've seen all about you on the news, daddy I'm gonna come through, give me Tags at the mom, mopping Louis bags in the carriage. Red what? tape on the bottom of your playlist. Susie O on the bottom of your playlist. Are you really disabled? Did you steal the cable? Is it you with the Easy Mac on the table? Tell me when you're buying me new shoes, daddy. I've seen all about you on the news, daddy. I'm gonna come through, give me your I can cook and clean up your food, daddy. And tomato soup you eating grilled cheese and tomato soup got the 50 cent drink and it's the unloop